0: Did I mention that most of the crew did not speak English? A day and a half in the office reveals the same stories told on the vessels. Everyone is aware of Ken and Rick's rivalry and its consequences, including Ken and Rick. As I share my discoveries with John, he leans forward with his head in his hands and stares morosely at the carpet. When I describe a particularly colourful detail of what is happening and the outcomes, John groans softly. We talk about the good things. The loyalty to John, the company's reputation in the industry, customer loyalty despite current frustrations, the talent of his staff in the office and on the vessels, we digest it all. I finally say, some of this stuff is not pretty. Deep sigh. I venture, why do I have a feeling that none of this is news, that you've been pretending not to know a lot of stuff? Deeper sigh, long silence. John addresses his first comment to the floor. I hate conflict. Another sigh. Then he looks me in the eye and says, It's important to me to be liked. I smile. You're in excellent company. As the facilitator, I will ensure that the scheduled meeting with employees takes place within important guidelines. However, tackling these issues will not be easy for John, so after I've gotten a picture of what is going on with him... I move to the conversation model I developed and use more often than any other with clients. It is extraordinarily powerful and wonderfully fierce and one with which you will become intimately familiar. It is used by coaches worldwide, those who coach inside and outside of organisations. I use it with John because it's essential that we review what's at stake for John and his company, what is to be gained or lost based on what he chooses to confront or ignore. And I want him to clarify what needs to happen, rather than rely on me for advice. Mineral rights. Years ago, this model was named mineral rights by workshop participants. Someone suggested, if you're drilling for water, it's better to drill 100 foot, a 100-foot well than 100 one-foot wells. This conversation goes deep. Another participant responded, this conversation is drilling for gold. Mineral Rights is my version of the man, the hot sauce I mentioned in the introduction that removed several layers of the lining of my mouth. A form of leadership at its most powerful. Mineral Rights interrogates reality by mining for increased increased clarity, improved understanding and impetus for change. This conversation breaks the mould and is not for the faint of heart. I think it's time you met. But first, let's take a look at three less effective common coaching models. Coach as advice giver. Several problems with this model. A coach with his or her unique history, experience, ideas, suggestions and particular brilliance will not have the right answers or solutions for every topic that comes up. Also, if the person you're coaching expects you to tell him or her what to do, that's a heavy load. And when it turns out that your suggestion didn't work, they can say, It's not my fault. I did what you suggested and it backfired. Besides, think about how resistant most of us are to acting on other people's advice. Excuse me a minute. Minty! Good girl. It's all right. Sorry. Um. Also, if the person you're coaching expects you to tell him or her what to do, that's a heavy load. And when it turns out that your suggestion didn't work, they can say, it's not my fault, I did what you suggested and it backfired. Besides, think about how resistant most of us are to acting on other people's advice. We're far more likely to act on our own ideas. During a mineral rights conversation, your goal is to provoke self-generated insights and you won't give advice until the very end after they've suggested the steps they will take. And by that time, you may not need to advise them at all. Home run. Coaching checklist. This is the one that got me in trouble in the early days. I take notes while my coachees told me what was going on and what they were planning to do. At the next meeting I'd asked them what had happened from my notes how things were going and what they were planning to do next. The assumptions I made was that they knew what we should focus on and I learned that while most coaches did know and I learned that while most coaches did know what we should focus on they didn't always want to go there at least not today. Even during conversations that began with a clear focus we need to talk about this. It was easy to get sidetracked onto rabbit trails. Typically, we began on one topic, quickly veered off course and ended up somewhat lost and frustrated, having made little progress on the main issue. An important part of a coach's job is to juggle the frivolous with the significant. The challenge is telling them apart. For example, if you've read Beowulf, then you know that while Grendel was a terror, his mother was far worse. Here's the short version. In Denmark lived King Hrothgar, beloved by many. His men enjoyed evenings at the Mead Hall, drinking, telling stories, singing songs. One night the door burst open and a creature called Grendel burst into the room and dismembered several men before dragging one of them screaming out into the night. This put quite a damper on the party, but it was a real high for Grendel, who returned the very next night. Though the men were armed and ready, they couldn't defeat him. More carnage. Lucky for Hrothgar, Beowulf, a travelling hero for hire, showed up the next day looking for work. Hrothgar offered Beowulf anything he wanted if he would slay Grendel. After hearing how many men Grendel had killed, Beowulf was a little worried, but in true hero fashion decided to give it a go. When Grendel returned for his third deadly raid on the Mead Hall, the horrific battle was on. Beowulf barely survived but finally managed to tear off one of Grendel's arms and the creature fled into the night, howling and bleeding profusely from his fatal wound. Everyone celebrated. Beowulf was rewarded many treasures, including the prettiest wench in the land, and the parties resumed. Imagine everyone's horror when a few nights later, in the darkest hour, the door to the mead hall came off its hinges and, filling the door well, Doorway was Grendel's mother. She was far bigger and badder than Grendel, and she was seriously pissed. Many more men died that night. Clearly, Beowulf's job wasn't over, so he headed out to the grassy marshes and boggy swamps where Grendel's mother lived. Finally, arriving at a black lake, where he watched as wild dogs pursued a stag to the water's edge. Rather than glowing, go into the black water, the stag stopped on the edge of the lake and was taken down by the dogs. The problem was, Grendel's mother lived in a cave beneath the lake. Beowulf had serious misgivings about this assignment, but what's a hero hero to do? Beowulf removed his heavy armour and swam down, down, down into the lake to the cave where he discovered Grendel's mother sleeping. When he raised his sword to kill her, she awoke. His sword disintegrated and he stood before her with empty hands as she attacked. Just when he was about to take his last breath, His fingers found the handle of a dagger on the floor of the cave, which he drove into her throat, killing her. By the way, they made this into a movie with Angelina Jolie as Grendel's mother. I don't think so. But here's the learning for those of us who coach or mentor. Are you and your coachee dinking around with Grendel or a series of Grendels while Grendel's mother is alive and well and about to cause serious damage? Your goal as a coach is to find out if Grendel has a mother and it's unlikely that you'll find her on the surface. You'll have to go into the conversational lake beneath the surface where few are eager to go. And once you're there, all of the coaching techniques you've learned may not help you. Best to go in with empty hands and use what you find when you arrive. The mineral rights questions are are you with empty hands, searching for what is truly needed. Your checklist may not reveal Grendel's mother, but mineral rights will smoke her out if she's lurking nearby. All head, no heart. I've worked with lots of great people who live primarily in their heads. They're reasonable, they explain what they're going to do and why. It makes perfect sense. And then they don't follow through. This is almost always because they haven't gotten in touch with the emotions they feel around this issue. And they won't unless you ask them. Remember Daniel Kahneman's finding that people, that would be you. Remember Daniel Kahneman's finding that people that would be you and me, act first for emotional reasons, second for rational reasons. This is not biased towards gender or ethnicity. It is the human condition. Emotions give the lit match something to ignite. During a mineral rights conversation, you're building a bonfire by asking about emotions four times throughout the conversation. This may seem inappropriate, unprofessional and downright uncomfortable to old school coaches, but if you skip this part, it's as if your coachee is sitting in a race car that has no fuel, in no danger of going anywhere. Besides, where in our lives did we learn that we should never feel uncomfortable or cause anyone else to feel uncomfortable? Certainly, you want to do no harm, But sometimes a coaching conversation should be provocative. There is gold in them now and comfortable hills. Whether you're an independent coach or an internal leader coach, your product, if you will, is coaches who have been transformed in some meaningful way as a result of the work that you do with them. Your goal may be to increase their effectiveness and enhance their lives. But all coaching conversations are not equal. Mineral rights will help you drill down deep on a topic by asking your colleague, customer, boss, direct report, spouse, child or friend a series of questions. This is not a dentist's painful drilling sans novocaine. It's a natural exploration of an important issue. Helping your coachee interrogate reality in such a way that he or she is mobilised to take potent action on tough challenges. Taking action is key. I don't know about you, but I develop compassion fatigue with coachees who complain about the same issue over and over and don't do what is needed to fix it. The well has run dry and I'm all out of love. My friend Charlotte Thompson, a psychotherapist in the UK, provided a marvellous visual in a recent email. I had an interesting image come into my head the other day of me as a dust truck, trundling along and people just throwing black bags of rubbish into the back, which I have to go and sort through. I think there is something about understanding that I'll help with the recycling. But no, this is their rubbish and therefore primarily their responsibility to sort. I don't think I have to finger through the egg yolk and old bacon to get to the recyclable material. Don't mind helping, but not doing it all perhaps. I love this. In a mineral rights conversation, your coachee sorts through the rubbish, does the heavy lifting throughout the conversation and leaves the conversation with clarity and commitment to action so that you won't need to have the same conversation the next time you meet. My mineral rights conversation with John, the owner of the fishing company, took about an hour. Following is an abbreviated version of the conversation. Of the issues we've uncovered, which one is most important? The issue that, when it's resolved, will give you the greatest return on investment of whatever time, energy, dollars you allocate to it. The competition between Ken and Rick. Summarise for me the current impact of this competition. The problems between Ken and Rick translate to competition between vessels and go directly to the bottom line. When a favoured vessel ends up with better equipment than the others, it performs better. The others are struggling to do their best with marginal equipment. Keep talking. Well, on top of some vessels having lousy equipment, the fishmasters are actually giving one another wrong information about where the fish are, all because of this competition thing. This makes me crazy. Crazy? It makes me nuts. We're all supposed to be working together, all our people, all the vessels. But because Rick and Ken have got this power struggle going on, I've got one ship doing great while the others are still trying to find the fish, much less catch them. Who else is being impacted? What else? Morale is the lowest it's ever been. Key personnel are threatening to leave. I've got some great talent here and I don't want to lose them. I can't afford to. How is it impacting the company? We're not as profitable as profitable as we should be, as we could be. Frankly, I'm fed up. You're fed up. Talk to me about what you're feeling, how this is important to you. When grown men, highly skilled, act like children, it's... I wait... Beyond frustrating, it's maddening. These are well-paid professionals. I take good care of them. When they dig in their heels over who's got the shiniest toys, who's got the most clout, when they sneak around pulling off all kinds of devious bullshit to see whose vessel can catch the most fish, John leans back, looks up at the ceiling, then slumps forward. We are one company, many ships, one company. If they can't see that, what are you feeling? Silence, then... Betrayed, I feel betrayed. Imagine that it's six months from now, a year from now, and nothing has changed. What are the implications? <sighs> Groans. I'd have to fire myself, say to hell with it. What's at stake for you to lose or gain? Millions of dollars, pleasure in the work, self esteem, physical health. We explore specifics. When you contemplate that scenario, what do you feel? Exhausted but determined, I can't let this continue. What are you doing that's keeping this situation exactly the way it is? Frowns. I don't understand, I don't know. What would it be if you did know? Smiles, frowns, thinks. I wait. After a long silence, he sits up straight and looks directly at me. I haven't outlined clear consequences if Ken and Rick's rivalry continues. Say more. They probably feel safe. My guess is they doubt I'll pull the trigger on those consequences and fire one of them if they can't work together. Are they right? No. Long silence. No. Another long silence. If this doesn't stop, one of them will have to go. John. John. Let's shift gears. Let's imagine you've tackled this head-on and the issue is resolved. Completely. Brilliantly. Ken and Rick are working together, rather than competing with each other. What difference will that make? All the difference. For example, if Ken and Rick put their heads together and collaborated, they're both geniuses at this. All the vessels would be equally well-equipped. Good fishing grounds would be shared. Everybody would catch more fish, which translates into better profitability for the company, better pay for the crew, better morale, happier times for all of us. What else? Well, obviously, higher profits would allow us to upgrade equipment, expand the fleet. As they say, all ships would rise and I'd sleep better. I wouldn't be thinking of selling the whole damn thing. When you consider those outcomes, better profitability, improved morale, sleeping better what do you feel? Hope. Say more. I love this business. I'd love to stay in the game. Things would be a lot more fun around here. I wouldn't feel like the Lone Ranger. Given everything we've talked about, what's the next most potent step you can take to improve the issue prior to the company meeting? Talk to Ken and Rick individually and together one more time. What's going to differentiate this from previous conversations you've had with Ken and Rick? That's where you come in. I agree to prepare him for that talk. What's going to get in your way? My need to be liked, which translates into rarely making clear requests. In this case, requirements, not requests, with consequences attached. What about the other issues if... What about the other issues? Possible bribery in Vladivostok? Fraternisation? Drinking? What difference will it make when those issues are resolved? We go through them one by one. What exactly are you committed to do and when? Talk to Rick and Ken on Monday. What's your ideal outcome? They stop competing and work as a team. I don't lose either one of them. If the competition continues, what action are you prepared to take? Fire the sons of bitches, sell the company, move to Tahiti. Let's craft a conversation that will lessen the possibility of those outcomes, at least in the near future. I feel strongly that our goal is to retain both Ken and Rick. It's Friday and John wants time to prepare. We agree to work over the weekend on the phone. On Monday, John talks with Ken and Rick separately, then together. I meet with John and his six key executives on Tuesday to to debrief them about the findings from my interviews with crew, office staff, customers and vendors. Although there are no surprises, it is eerily quiet as the words float in the air above the boardroom table. Ken and Rick apologise to the executive team for the damage their rivalry has caused. I'm impressed. It takes a big person. From my talks with Rick, I suspect that he is in no immediate danger of overhauling his hardwired manipulative nature. He has a certain charm, however, and is exceptional at his job. I see how valuable he is to the company. John will circle back to issues with Rick later. I remind the executive team that fierce does not mean barbarous, menacing or cruel. Fierce means powerful, strong, unbridled, unrestrained, robust. It means coming out from behind ourselves into the conversation and making it real. There will be no blood on the floor, no violence. I talk about the purposes of fierce conversations, interrogate reality, provoke learning, tackle tough challenges, enrich relationships. I coach them regarding their roles in our upcoming session, especially John, Ken and Rick. I answer questions, turning most of the questions back to the executives to answer them for themselves. I tell them, the answers are in the room. If they aren't, we have the wrong people. You are the right people, you have the answers. A week later, John, two interpreters, they spell each other, we wear them out. 40 vessel personnel and 15 office staffers file into a large room. The seats fill in from the back. Arms are tightly crossed against massive chests. When we begin, I suspect there will be skid marks across the floor from heels dug in. My conversation with John was a mineral rights conversation. Now it was time for a beach ball conversation with everyone assembled. I lay out the issues without mincing words. They are stunned as John and I describe what is really going on, naming each of the issues without putting pillows around them. I remind myself to breathe. The interpreters struggle to find the words in Russian. I hope they are close to what I want to convey. I say that we will confront the real issues. That confront does not mean argue or beat up. Confront means search for the truth. That honesty means full disclosure to myself and others with good intent. I tell them that we're going to take on the biggest, smelliest, ugliest, nastiest issue first. So we will find out what we're made of and go from there. We begin by addressing the rivalry between Ken and Rick. We experience our first moment of truth when Ken stands, faces everyone and says, I have shown favourites among our vessels, I admit it, it's unacceptable and I apologise, it's stopping now. Ken waits quietly as 54 people digest what he has said. The turning point comes when Richard, a highly regarded engineer whose vessel Clearwater is the one Ken has favoured with equipment and supplies, stands and admits. It's put some of us in a difficult position, Ken. On the one hand, I appreciate what you've done for the Clearwater, but it's made it hard to help out the guys on the other vessels, and that's what we're supposed to do. Ken looks as if he's been kicked in the gut. Richard is one of Ken's most valuable employees. Ken shakes his head. This is not easy. The interpreters trade places. It's been only one hour, and the first interpreter looks pale. (laughs) Rick stands. Some of you know I've been... I haven't felt good about... Hell, you all know I wanted Ken's job. I've made no bones about that. But that wasn't your problem. I made it your problem. Shouldn't have happened. Gonna fix it. The attendees begin to show up authentically, honestly. Some defend their behaviour. Others reveal the amazing grace of those who engage without defence. They set the bar for the rest of us. Chris, a deckhand from Australia, shows us the way. He's passionate about fishing and about his love for the work, for his mates. He's angry that so much damage has been done to morale. We ask for suggestions as to how to begin to turn this around. Chris offers ideas, then faces John and says, Good on you, mate, for having this meeting. Through it all, John is impeccable. As we tackle additional issues, he asks questions, and when he asks, he's really asking. He listens thoughtfully, offers the perspective that only he can offer, answers questions... And when he answers questions, he really answers them. Doesn't duck them. No shuck and jive. I see why they respect him and watch their respect deepen. Things happened as a result of the session. The fishmaster, who was drinking and fraternising was made available to industry. The vessel he had captained continued to catch the most fish. Rick wasn't sure he could accept the changes he'd have to make. He resigned to take another job, was gone for one week and then asked to return. John took him back. Rick returned slightly humbled. Ken and Rick still engaged in minor power struggles, but the struggles were less visible to the larger community. Vessel favouritism was stopped dead in its tracks. Communication among vessels became timely and accurate. All vessels caught fish. Reports were accurate. The HR director still had a fatal attraction to gossip, but she stopped leaking it to crew members. Morale improved. Following the meeting with the 55 employees John and I met monthly to continue our fierce conversations about his work and what was next for him. When I asked John if I could use his company as a case study on the benefits of the beach ball approach he said I'd be honoured I'm proud of my company and what we've accomplished he has a right to be. Though John's story concerns a unique industry the issues are similar to those in many organisations high tech low tech no tech Competition for titles and bragging rights among individuals and teams. Lack of appreciation for others' realities. Competition for scarce resources. Tolerance of the ineffective or harmful behaviour of a high performer or of entrenched victims who feel, he did it to me, she did it to me, they did it to me, it's not my fault, not my problem. Ground truth. Several years ago, I was introduced to the military term ground truth. Which refers to what's actually happening on the ground versus the official tactics. One of the challenges worth going after in any organization, be it a company or a marriage, is getting to ground truth. Seems to me you have to get at ground truth before you can turn anything around. John Tompkins mastered the courage to interrogate reality in his organization, to get at ground truth publicly, no hidden agenda. What is ground truth in your organization? Everyday companies falter and fail because the difference between ground truth and the official truth is significant. The official truth is available for general circulation and is viewed by most team members as propaganda. Ground truth is discussed around the water cooler, in the bathrooms and in the parking lot, but is seldom offered for public consumption and rarely shows up when you need it most, when the entire team is assembled to discuss how to introduce a new product or to analyse the loss of a valuable customer and figure out how to prevent it from happening again. I recently talked with a friend who attends the kinds of high-level political meetings you read about in thrillers. He reminded me that politicians are adept at navigating within the sizeable gap between ground truth and official truth. Everyone is careful, guarded, no one admits to vulnerability, to failure, that they're not the centre of the universe, that they're not in control. My friend went on to say that the China policy, a China-focused policy analysis and strategic advisory firm, is referred to as the China policy of ambiguity. All communications on the topic are oblique and soft. Nothing anyone says has any meat on the bones. Trying to enforce anything would be like trying to nail jello to the wall. In June 2001, when President Bush attended a meeting with European leaders to discuss global warming, Jack Beltran, a military affairs expert at the French Institute for International Relations in Paris, was widely quoted, describing the talks as full of back-slapping bonhomie, yet on matters of substance, they were the polite dialogue of the deaf. I recall my attempt to have a meaningful conversation with a local politician during a dinner party. Trying to engage him was like trying to sculpt air. There was nothing there, no discernible human being with whom to converse. Following the September 11th attack on America, dialogue got real in a hurry. It had to. Buildings had literally come to the ground, and now we had to come to the ground as well, to ground truths. Individuals all over the world began to understand that in a very real sense, the progress of the world depends on the progress of each individual human being now. Leadership must be for the world, rather than being an appeasement of individuals with special interests, John Tompkins' official truth had been that the competition between his two highly capable operations executives was invisible to the rest of the organisation. He had convinced himself that a little creative tension between his two top leaders and his fishing vessels could be tolerated. Meanwhile, ground truth was inflicting significant harm on a daily basis. What conversation can we have with one another to help our collective understanding of ground truths? Let's examine current reality, what has changed since last we met, where are we succeeding, where are we failing, what have we learned in the last few months, if nothing changes, what are the implications, what is required of us now? Each of us needs honest answers to these questions, in the workplace and at home, we can begin by identifying the official truths in our companies and in our relationships that conflict with ground truth. Assignment. Before you read further, stop for a moment and have a quiet conversation with yourself. Are there differences between official truths and ground truths in your workplace, in your personal relationships, in your life? If so, write them down. The following examples may help you get started. My company's official truth is that our goal is to be world class in everything we do. Ground truth is that many of us are embarrassed by frequent blunders that have not been acknowledged or addressed. The official truth in my marriage is that we're happy, that everything is fine. Ground truth is that we've been avoiding significant issues. If we fail to resolve them, our marriage could fail. The official truth in my life is that I'm on track to be successful. Ground truth is that my job is unfulfilling. I'm just going through the motions. Fierce conversations with yourself, such as these, are not for the faint of heart. They require courage, from the French word cœur, meaning heart, There are conversations during which you're likely to overhear yourself saying things you didn't know you knew or didn't want to know. We've each had our own sense. We have each. We each have our own sense of the reality of the situation, our own truths. These truths can be far more removed from reality and often cause our conversations to travel the same ground over and over and over again. I'm reminded of the story of the man who visits a Zen master. The man asks, What truths can you teach me? The master replies, do you like tea? The man nods his head and the master pours him a cup of tea. The cup fills and the tea spills, still the master pours. The man of course protests and the master responds, return to me when you are empty. The lesson here is that we need to empty ourselves of our preconceived beliefs in order to be open to a broader, more complex reality. During fierce conversations, we're more likely to get all our answers questioned than the other way around. Before we can learn, we must unlearn. We must empty the cup by temporarily setting aside our opinions and being open and willing to explore competing ideas. Official truths in my workplace. Ground truths in my workplace. Official truths in my personal relationships. Ground truths in my personal relationships. Official Truths in My Life. Ground Truths in My Life. Getting Real with Yourself. How do the realities we've explored for companies apply to you as an individual? A useful question is, what are my skills and talents, and are there gaps between those talents and what I'm bringing to the job market, to my career and to my personal relationships? In Studs Terkel's book, Working, a young woman named Nora describes her excitement when she landed her first real job after college. It was for a large, well-known company, and she was intent on bringing everything she was and everything she'd learned to the task at hand. The problem was, her co-workers made it clear in subtle and not-so-subtle ways that if she brought everything she had to the task, she would wreck the curve for everyone else. Nora said, and this is the part I remember so vividly, the part that went through me like a chill, Within a few weeks, as I was driving to work, I psyched myself down for a job that was too small for me. Within a month, I had absented my spirit from my work. Absented my spirit. What a price to pay, both for Nora and for her company. No one does herself or her company any favours by staying in a job in which there is very little of her alive. Perhaps your current job isn't the right place for you and you know it. Perhaps it is asking only a small fraction of what you're capable of delivering and every attempt to deliver more has been denied. Perhaps your job requires you to deliver results that hold little interest for you or that are beyond your capabilities. Maybe you've been telling yourself that it's not so bad where you are, that while it may not be your dream job, you've gotten used to it, that it's actually kind of comfortable here. You've got a salary and benefits and a place to go five days a week. After all, you've got only 15 years until retirement. You can hang on until then for the sake of keeping a roof over your family's heads. What happens in your gut when you hear yourself thinking this way? Meanwhile, you have dreams of breaking free, of a different career altogether. In fact, there are days when you'd rather write, read, walk, sculpt, teach, work in a paint store, drive a forklift, sell seashells on the seashore, do anything except the job to which you're currently attached. One of my colleagues, Pat Murray, suggests... If you want to see someone in real pain, watch someone who knows who he is and defaults on it on a regular basis. If there is no joy in Mudville when you contemplate your job, if you live only for weekends, you are in real pain. Yet often the companies we work for are the right companies. The problem is that we're in the wrong place in the company or underutilised in our job. Perhaps a fierce conversation with co-workers can open doors to new, more satisfying challenges. However, if your job is no longer appropriate or sufficient for you and the situation cannot be remedied unless you were to become a different human being entirely, it's time to leave. You can't afford to sit there like a possum in the headlights or you may end up as the critter de jour at the roadside tavern. It may be time to screw your courage to the sticking place and fire yourself. Make yourself available to the industry. Make yourself available to whatever is out there with your name on it. Ask yourself... What activities have my heart? What am I called to do? And if you're still hesitating, ask yourself, is the personal cost I'm paying really worth it? One of the rules of engagement for companies, couples and individuals who are practising the principles of fierce conversations is that while no one has to change, everyone has to have the conversation. When the conversation is real, the change occurs before the conversation has ended. Insights about who we are and what we really want and need are already at work, rearranging our interior furniture, cleaning our internal closet of unnecessary clutter, revealing the way we must go. And what if the path with your name on it requires a radical upheaval of life as you know it? What if you recognise that to step into a more pleasing life, you must change career direction entirely? You may be thinking, if I do what I really want to do, I'll make less money. How would my family feel about simplifying our lifestyle, cutting back on expenditures? What would people think? After all, everyone thinks I'm successful where I am. My response to such concerns is addressed by a definition of success that has served me well for many years. I am successful to the degree that who I am and what I live are in alignment. I am doing the right work, with the right people, for the right reasons. In getting to this place of alignment, one thing is clear. The quality of our lives is largely determined by the quality of the questions we ask ourselves and the quality of our answers. Answered thoughtfully and candidly, the right questions offer the possibility of a life that is much more than a satisfactory compromise. As a leader, you must answer the right questions for yourself first and then for the company. Eric Erickson wrote, There are certain individuals who, in the process of resolving their own inner conflicts, become paradigms for broader groups. What are the right questions? They are the big questions that define your ideal future. Where am I going? Why am I going there? Who is going with me? How am I going to get there? Am I realising my full potential? Am I fully extended in my capabilities? Is there value and fulfilment in my work today? What unmet needs am I moved and positioned to meet? The biggest barrier to addressing such questions is fear of the journey. Fear of discovering who we are or the permanence of who we are. Or the impermanence of who we are. Yet these questions are compelling because they lead to an eminently desirable outcome. They enable deep, positive personal change. They open up possibilities not previously accessible. Companies, teams, families and communities have been changed by individuals who have arrived at compelling clarity about the trajectories of their corporate and personal lives, having wrestled these questions to the ground. Our answers provide the context through which we experience the content of our lives. How do you build this internal context? Articulate the highest and best contribution your company, your family and your life can make. We'll take a closer look at several of these questions in chapter two. In this chapter, you've begun to focus on your reality. On what colour the beach ball is from your perspective. You've engaged in a fierce conversation with yourself about your life's focus and that of your company and your career. In subsequent chapters, you'll gain skills in drawing out your colleagues, customers and life partners' views of reality. You'll learn how to really ask in such a way that people really respond. You'll learn how to engage others in conversations resulting in greater clarity, intimacy, understanding and impetus for change, bringing you closer together no matter how far apart your current realities and hopes for the future seem today. A refresher. Lucy? Sit down, be quiet, or go out of the room. Sorry about that. A refresher. Regularly interrogating regularly interrogating reality in your workplace is the cornerstone of great leadership. Healthy cultures, intelligent strategies, and wholehearted execution. What has changed? Does the plan still make sense? If not, what is required? I'm going to go back and I'm going to do that again because I don't feel like I was reading it properly. So I was concentrating on a little six-year-old playing in front of me. A refresher. Regularly interrogating reality in your workplace is the cornerstone of great leadership. Healthy cultures, intelligent strategies and wholehearted execution. What has changed? Does the plan still make sense? If not, what is required of you, of others? Since everyone owns a piece of the truth about reality, consider whose realities should be explored before important decisions are made. Avoid blame by modifying your language. Replace the word but with and. If Grendel's mother is out there, take her on.